If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, please. 1 Corinthians 12. We've been going through a series called The Gifts in the Body. As believers in Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, when you recognize that your sin has reserved your place in the lake of fire for eternity, you need a rescue plan. Jesus Christ has divinely come in our likeness, has lived a perfect life, and has died a perfect death in our place so that we have free access to the God of the universe based on His work and not ours. So when we believe in Him because He is righteous, that righteousness is now imputed or transferred to our stead. And when God sees us, He sees us as righteous. Now here's the amazing thing. God doesn't just declare us as righteous. He treats us as righteous. Now, I don't know about you. If I took some time to contemplate myself, I would find things that are very unrighteous. So the fact that God treats me as righteous, even though I'm fully aware of my unrighteousness, is an amazing word we call grace. And that's why we worship Him and praise Him and are in awe of what He has done, is because it's the complete opposite of everything that I've deserved or ever earned in my life. Instead, I'm getting what Christ has earned for me. And that's a beautiful gift. One of the amazing things about being a Christian is that the moment you believe, you are placed into what is called the body of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are part of Jesus' body. He serves as our head, being that He thinks for us. He decides for us. He plans for us. He leads us in the way that we ought to go. And thank the Lord, He speaks for us, hopefully, right? Until I get my mouth in the way, I would hope that He's speaking for me. I'm the only person who's going to mess all that up. So thankfully, He's also speaking as the head of the body. Where the head directs, the body should go. Has anybody ever seen a head go one way and a body go the other? No. You have? What a motorcycle accident. That is not a circumstance that we would like the body of Christ to be involved in. An interesting part about being in the body and having that divine direction is that we've all been given gifts to exercise. We've all been blessed in some way with some special ability that the Holy Spirit has imparted to us because God desires for us to do spiritual things. Not just live a better fleshly life. Not just get our act together. Not just try to turn over a new leaf and take on a new character and get, our, and, and, and get our house in order. None of that is possible apart from God's involvement. And none of that can be prompted apart from divine intervention. It's got to be God doing the work. I can't stress this enough. Because in giving spiritual gifts to the church, there's a part of me that feels that God took a risk. And the reason is, is because when we know what our spiritual gift is, we've immediately become dangerous. Because the question is, how can I use it for self? How can I serve self? When we find everything pointing to the betterment of the people around us. Now, when we're called into this relationship with Christ, we've been called out of something. We've been called out of a sin pattern. We've been called out of sin solutions in order to deal with problems. But also, we've been called out of a surrounding culture that has for years indoctrinated us with certain ways of thinking. Let me give you a good example of this on a minor scale. How many of you have voicemail on your phone? Yes? 
But maybe you're not able to answer that voicemail, and so the person has to leave a message. Anybody? Right? If you don't get a chance to play the message, you can sometimes look at the transcript. Does anybody have that feature? You see the transcript of the voicemail. If somebody calls you with an accent, what does your transcript look like? Fun. That's a great word to say. I love my mother. You think I've got a thick Kentucky accent? She doesn't say boys. She says boys. Okay? Yes. So when she calls and leaves a message, and I can't get to the audio of it yet, and I'm reading the transcript, I'm thinking, why is she calling me all these terrible names? What have I done? But there's something about the culture that she grew up in that has tailored a lot of things about her, especially the way that she has pronunciation. It's not any different from us. You guys say some weird words up here. You do. Soda, right? We call everything Coke. I don't understand that. A bubbler? A bubbler. I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, a water fountain. That's what you're talking about, right? And you guys hate margarine, which I'm okay with, right? Laverne, are you okay with that? You like margarine? You like margarine? That's what I said. I'll wake you up when I'm I'll wake you up when I'm done. It's the accent. Yes, thank you. Okay, great. The sad thing is that culture often dictates how we approach some things. And one of the greatest dangers, maybe, that we've never even thought about is that our culture runs the danger of intersecting our Christianity. And then we start to go about life with diminished views of God. Now, I had the privilege of having dinner with Dave on Wednesday. And we had a great conversation about this subject. Because especially being in Africa, there's a lot of things that a culture would bring. And it's not any different from any other culture, just different elements. Bring into Christianity and ask the question, how does this fit? How does this work together? And Dave brought up a really good point. He said, you know, sometimes... People think that they're heard by God for long prayers. Jesus tells us this in the Sermon on the Mount. People pray for a long time and trying to find the biggest words with as many letters as they possibly can to be heard. Because we think somehow that merits smartness in our culture and so that gains traction with the Almighty God. And I love it because Dave said that's just self-flagellants. I thought that's a great way to say it. It's a wonderful way. Sometimes we call on God in prayer Because we want him to do our bidding. He said, that's just magic. I said, I'm stealing this. I'm saying this on Sunday. This is great. We had a wonderful conversation about it. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 3, we looked at this last week, and we're doing pretty much the same thing we did last week, only I want to show you more instances of why is Paul writing in such a way that he's got a correct thinking about God. It says here, now concerning spiritual gifts, concerning spiritual things, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. There's no reason for anybody to be ignorant in this situation. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now the idea here is, without God, you're following whatever you think you ought to, or your culture is telling you the best way to go. Everybody wants to do well in life. Very few people sit up saying, you know what, if my life ends as a dumpster fire, we've done it. Nobody says that. Everybody wants good things and to enjoy things. And so the question is, when you come into Christianity, 
How can you carry these pagan idol elements into it? And this is a danger, especially that a lot of missionaries find on the field when they're introducing the idea of who God is. And this is why they have to establish him as the creator over all things. Because if you don't and you just run straight to Jesus and try to bring him in, well, that's great. Jesus fits along this God and this God and this God and this God. But Jesus just happens to do certain different things to help me out. It's very self-centered. And you end up finding that there's nothing special about Jesus. He's just on a little bit upper escalon with these other deities that they all already worship. You have to destroy that mindset and reestablish it so that culture does not mix in. As pagans, we followed whatever we thought was the best. We were led in whatever way it seemed right to us because we were the ones determining right and wrong. Verse 3, Therefore I make known to you, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? The Holy Spirit makes the difference in how you live. And it's something totally removed and drastically changing now what is the problem here the problem is something known as syncretism now i gave this to you last week syncretism can we bring that up dave syncretism syncretism happens when someone mixes what they think the bible says have you had anybody make a truth claim to you and go where does it say that in the bible well i think it's in and they scratch their head and they don't know so they'll say the new testament okay well that's you know Narrows it down a little bit. They thought they think the Bible says with their inherent culture-influenced worldview. Combining these two very different worldviews leads to them adopting a third mixed belief system that is unlike the first two. Here's a graphic illustration we used last week. You come to the table already believing something. The Bible starts leading you into truth, into new ways of thinking. But instead of saying that there is a solid break in that thinking, we try to take what we're bringing to the table and add it to what we've just received at another table and say, how can we make it one big table? That becomes a danger. That becomes a drastic danger. So, last week we looked at some mystery religions in Corinth. And we saw that they're very secretive, very uh, secret initiations that go on. A lot of crazy dancing. Who knows what was going on at that time? I'm, I'm really sad because today the ones we're going to look at, they have drums in them a lot. That just makes me sad. It just does. But I want, you to also, I want you to see what is Corinth coming out of in order for Paul to have to write the way that he does. Because when he talks about spiritual gifts, he's saying this is different from what you think you had going on with pagans. That was all demon activity. This is the almighty good God of the universe. It's totally different thinking. So we can't marry the two. We've got to have a break. We've got to have a separation. The mystery religions of Corinth, the first one, was known as the Sibylle Attis cult that we're going to look at today. Last week we looked at the Eleusian cult. This one is the Sibylle Attis cult, popularized around 200 BC. Sibylle is considered the goddess of the fertile earth. And she originated from Asia Minor. In fact, you find that a lot of these people brought in these false cults and demon religions from Asia Minor, which where did Asia Minor get them from? Babylon. Babylon is where they came from. This is the reason why you see Babylon, the great harlot, falling to her doom in Revelation because it's setting up a false religious worship system over there 
in the time of the tribulation. Priests who were stirred by clashing cymbals, loud drums, it kills me. Because I love to clash cymbals and I love to beat loud drums. And screeching flutes. Now Laverne, I noticed you weren't playing anything today. But if you would bring in a screeching flute, I think we'd all be down. Okay? I think it'd be good. Take lessons, let me know. They would at times dance in a frenzy of excitement, and then they would gash their bodies while they did it. So they had rocks or knives or razors or something like that of which they were having to bleed to appease the deity. That's not like anything we remember. How about the uh, prophets of Baal? You call out to your God, I'll call out to my God. and They're calling out, calling out. Well, maybe we need to gash ourselves. So You ever gashed yourself and somebody said, what did you say? That doesn't work. But that's their thinking because it's all messed up. New initiates would sometimes emasculate themselves in worship to become eunuchs. Okay? Now watch this. While being covered in the blood of a bull. Now is this gross or what? Let me ask you a question. Don't you think it's interesting that they understand something inherently about the idea as they need blood to cover them? Think about that. Where does that come from and what God has done of helping people recognize their need in a long-ago culture that we don't have any connection to except through the Bible in this book of understanding a pagan religion that demons had originated in those people's minds. And there's something about the fact of, I need blood for this worship to be right. That's interesting. How about the next slide? This is Sibley on the right. And here are her worshipers coming to her. All kinds of inscriptions like this everywhere around there. It wasn't just something that's, well, this is kind of strange and novel and little. No, it it dictated how culture ran at that time. There's also another uh, religious, religious system, a belief system, a cult that was there. The cult of Dionysus. Dionysus, this originated in Asia Minor as well, but it got adopted into Greek culture. He is known as the god of wine, and he's often identified with a pine tree. Now, immediately, your question is, How does wine and a pine tree go together? And my question in all my research is, I don't have a clue. That's probably why it's demonic and pagan. It doesn't have to work. It's just got to work for you in some weird way. In fact, outside of Corinth, they had designated a particular pine tree that they would all travel outside of the city, and they'd all gather around, and they'd all worship this pine tree. Don't think that's weird. Has anybody here ever been to Nashville, Tennessee? Okay, you have. Have any of you ever visited the Parthenon replica that they've made at Nashville, Tennessee? Mary, you have. Okay. Did you go in and see the statue? So there's a, there's a replica. It's only about one-fourth the size of what it really was in Rome, okay? But they have a replica of the Parthenon that's there in this, in this large park in the middle of Nashville, Tennessee, not too far from Vanderbilt University. And you go inside, and there's a replica of the Greek god Artemis. And she's in there. Did you see anything along with the Greek god Artemis that you thought was strange there? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a spectacle. It's something else. When I went there and I walked in and saw it, people had left gifts all around this statue on the floor. It was covered. It was surrounding it. People are still coming today and worshiping these things. It's not even the real Parthenon. It's not even the real statue. 
It's not even a real thing. And yet people are invested. It's costing them something to worship. Notice there's something in us that needs to worship. It needs an outlet. And that's the best they could think of. I mean, that, 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 we laugh at that, but that's sad. That's sad. Anyway, he's a God of wine. They're worshiping pine trees. Again, it doesn't have to make sense. It just got to work. He is called Lord of the loud cry, the mad exciter of women. That's what Dionysus is known as. Now, why is that? Because if you were part of the cult of Dionysus, as a woman, you were not deemed an inferior. You were extolled as special and awesome, and all the women are like, yeah, right? Because they are actually getting to be somebody outside of the societal trappings of their culture. It's elevating what is normally oppressed. There's a lot of freedom to be found there. And so that's why people are participating. Their initiation ceremonies involved ecstatic activities with sexual promiscuity, the drinking of wine, and the eating of raw flesh from animals. That's the way you like your burger, so be it. Move on. Peter Hoyle, this is an interesting quote. Following the torches as they dipped and swayed in the darkness... They climbed mountain paths with head thrown back and eyes glazed, dancing to the beat of the drum, of course, which stirred their blood in the state of ecstasis, or we would say ecstasy, right? Or, and I can't even pronounce that, I'm not going to pretend to, but we get the idea. They abandoned themselves. What's the idea here? Escaping from you, not rational thinking, Letting it all go. It's like a Calgon commercial, okay? Notice, they abandoned themselves, dancing wildly, and calling, Evoy! This is where the ladies get to cry out. They get to be the vocal mouthpiece of this time. And in the moment of intense rapture, they became identified with the God himself. They became filled with his spirit and acquired divine powers. Does everybody see how Satan seeks to mimic the God of the Bible? God gives you the Holy Spirit at the moment you believe in Christ. But He's never called us to be ecstatic and unorderly in our worship. He's never called us to make sure your eyes are glazed over and your head's thrown back. Never. He's a God of order. Very interesting. This is what Corinth is dealing with. How do we take these worship practices? I mean, oh, we're going to worship? What are they thinking? This. We're going to worship the Lord. Great. So we worship him like this. No, 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 no. Come down. Right? Let's rethink this. So what are some things that Paul evidences in his letter that's going to prepare us to understand how spiritual gifts are supposed to unfold when we do that next week? Turn with me, if you would, back to chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Now, this is a situation where Paul is having to make a judgment call on immorality in the church. And I don't want to get into all of that sidetracked here. But I want to see an interesting principle that he gives the Corinthians as they're learning what it is to be the body of Christ, coming out of mind-thinking philosophies like what we just saw. He says here, uh, let's see here, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know? that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, 
unleavened. Now stop. Here's what he's saying. Bread bakers, raise your hand. Okay? How much leaven do you need? Just a little bit. Where, do, how, where does it get to? Where does it get to when you're mixing it up? Is this spread pretty easily? Yeah. In fact, it gets all nice and warm and puffy, right? Good stuff. We, we like leaven. In this situation, notice what Paul is saying. Don't let this old stuff creep into something that's supposed to be totally brand new. Christianity is a brand new way of thinking, a brand new way of living, a brand new life that has been given to you freely. Clean out all this old stuff and throw it to the side so that you will be a new lump. And notice what he says there. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Now, why is that important for us to understand? Because when we start bringing in old ways of thinking and asking, how can I incorporate this into the Christ life that I'm seeking to live, we actually find out that we're living in a way that we not truly are. You end up play acting. You end up being an actor that's on a stage that is assuming a role that is not truly real. Why? Because you're not operating as you really are. You're trying to marry oil and water, and you can't. There's got to be an evaluation of pagan practices, and don't pretend like we don't have them. We all have them when we bring them to the table. And that's why the Word of God comes in to correct the mind and the heart so that we would forsake godless things and stop trying to fit God in the holes of how we want to operate. And it leads us to a point of surrender saying, you are the only true God. The life that you have given is the only true life. And the direction that you pave is the only way that makes any sense whatsoever to go because that's what my reality is. My reality is that I am a brand new lump. So anytime I'm dabbling in the old stuff, I am living apart from what Christ has done and secured for me. So he says here, just as you are in fact 11, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, because when you were involved in these cults, that's how you operated. These cults weren't taking any kind of moral stance on right and wrong. They weren't determining anything that was good or bad. They were probably saying first century equivalents to, well, that might be good for you, but it's not good for me. Anybody ever heard that? That's a postmodernist idea today. It's nothing new under the sun. Satan just repackages it and allows for smart people to slap a label on it. He says, yeah, if you're going to buy that lie, go for it. But I promise you, they're not drawing, drawing any lines in the sand as far as morality is concerned, especially with their worship practices. They're just not. Paul's saying that has no part with Christ. It's not about wickedness. It's not about malice. It's not about, will everybody do what you want to? Wouldn't that be great if our Christianity was just that? That's just as flexible as can be. All of our Bibles would be made of rubber. You could just twist them any way you wanted to. That'd be fun, right? It'd be wrong. And we would all know it. That's what's interesting. No matter how much you try to pursue that, we would still know it. Notice it says after that, not with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now I have no doubt that people were enraptured in pagan mindsets and lifestyles. They were seeking to be sincere. I don't want to frown upon that. The question is, is it true? Truth is what makes the difference when it comes to Christ. All of these other things, untruth. Christ, total truth. Turn with me over to 6. 
Look at verse 12. This was a fun thing. And just so you know, Paul is mocking them here. Uh, yeah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul can do that. It's okay. Notice it says, verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And here's where he mocks them. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food. Anybody know somebody like that? Get in my belly kind of guy. Anybody know that? What is he saying here? The law may say it's okay for you to participate in practices like this. That don't make it right. I think one of the greatest blights we have on our society is we have not made it illegal to cheat on your spouse. Ooh, nobody's got anything to say about that one, do they? Can you imagine if adultery was illegal? It was up until a time. Everybody know that? There came a time on the record books where somebody had to make a decision to go, you know what? Times have changed. Adultery is just not that bad. You know what? Let's get rid of this. Have we benefited from that? If we have, it's not in the right way, have we? Think about it. Think about it. And why did they get rid of it? Because everybody wanted to do it. Because majority ruled. Because culture dictated truth. You know what? This is just kind of getting in the way of people being who they truly want to be and truly being, here's how they sell it, happy. And so if that law is getting in the way of my happiness, we probably should get rid of the law. What did God say? You shall not commit adultery. Everybody see how we do that? And then sometimes when we try to marry that mindset with the church and we expect for the church to be okay because we're running around on our spouse on something like that, everybody's supposed to just be fine with it. That's the exact same thing that Paul is technically rebuking in 1 Corinthians 5. You guys are proud of this? You should be ashamed of yourselves. What is wrong with y'all? That's probably in the Greek. It doesn't make any sense. Notice what he says here. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. A self-indulgent idea. And, but here's how he counteracts that. But God will do away with both of them. That'll sober you up real quick. If you live for food and you're exalting your body and it's all about you and how much you can get and we find that he expounds on that later because when they were showing up for the Lord's Supper, People were showing up early, eating everything they could, getting drunk on all the wine. And when the people showed up who didn't have anything and they were looking for that to be for their meal for the day, they were like, sorry. That sell well with you? Would that sell well with you if it was happening here? No. And you know, you know Paul was bald. You know he was. What is wrong with you people, right? You know he's doing that as he's writing to them. It should just be common morals and ethics and notice that it's not for them. God will do away with both of them. In other words, the reverence really matters of your perspective of God, not about how well you're serving or filling yourself. He says here, yet the body is not for immorality, and that word there means sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, not the flesh. The Lord is not for the flesh. The Lord is for our bodies. Why? He's the designer of our bodies. He's actually for us and not against us. Steward your body according to reverence for the creator of your body. Totally different mindset. Totally different mindset. 
You look at some of these pagan religions they're coming out of. This god fought with this god, and there was some kind of crazy war that went on, and there's some primordial ooze, and next thing you know, people are coming up out of it. That's how they thought. One god conquers another god in order to bring about the sun, or the moon, or me, or you. It's not one almighty creator over all things, creating specially, intentionally, personally, in likeness and image of himself. Completely different mindset. So it makes sense how you steward your body with the Lord in front. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. There's your rapture verse right there. He will raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Should we do that? No, in fact, he gives you the double negative in the Greek. May it never be. No, 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 no. Never. It makes no sense to do that. Why? Because you're compromising the truth of who you really are to try to incorporate how the world has taught you to live. And you're saying, it's okay, Jesus. It's not okay. It's actually blasphemous. It's actually degrading. It's actually lesser than what Christ died to secure. How about this one? Move on to uh, chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. This is interesting. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Sure, Paul, tell us about it. And here's what you're going to find. We're not going to cover this part of it. The Corinthians, uh, and you can look at it if you want to reference it. Verse 10 is where it's at in this chapter. The Corinthians actually said, you know what? If we've been redeemed, I think they're having a really great fish fry over at the Dionysus temple tonight. We're free. And we understand that idols aren't a big deal. Let's go over there and eat. Yeah, that sounds good. I heard they got good appetizers. We all go. And Paul's like, whoa, wait a second. You may be free in Christ, but nobody was ever made free in Christ to be stupid. This is a bad idea. Because now you're not just sitting down to eat a meal. There are all kinds of pagan connotations strapped into that. And you're receiving that in yourself and everybody's looking at you and going, well, there ain't nothing about, different about those people. They're participating in the same thing I am. And how does that influence people who came out of that mindset? Here's what he says. Now concerning things, sacrifice idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And knowledge makes arrogant. Or some of your translations are going to say knowledge puffs up. But here's the difference. But love edifies. Love builds up. All of us have got knowledge about something, but I promise you this. My knowledge has often led to a mental and spiritual spanking when it's never been tempered with love. It's always gotten both feet firmly planted in my mouth. The idea of introducing love is an ultimate goal in your life now, is not anything that they were exercising in the Sibylli Addis cult. The Eleusians were not like, let's go for love. No, they were like, let's do it for lust. And so the idea of love, this selfless consideration for others around me without expecting anything in return, that's a radical mindset. Our world today can't even get that right, even though they're trying, right? Because all you need is, you sure? I don't think John Lennon believed that in the end. He knows better now. Moving on. If anyone supposes 
that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, the moment that you thought you've arrived mentally, if it's without love, you actually find out you know nothing because love is not the integral part that you're aiming for. Love should temper that knowledge. He moves on, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, ah, first things first, he is known by him. And that is speaking of deep relationship. These are the obedient Christians. Therefore, verse 4, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Isn't that a Christian standard? Idols aren't real. They're not, are they? If I brought one in and set it up here, we might be a little offended that it's here, but ultimately we're going to go, you know, made in Taiwan. We get it, right? And that's all it is. We know that there's one almighty God and creator that we serve. He is the only true God because he stands in complete separation. He is altogether holy from everything that he has created. His character was never diminished by the sin that we introduced into this world. So we understand that there's one God. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, and here's what's interesting about this phrase, and many lords. Everybody see this word, lords? In the Greek, this was actually a title that was used for the deities of these mystery cults. They actually use this Greek word to determine them as lords, 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 Dionysus, it doesn't matter who it is, they were all considered under this heading. And so Paul uses that specifically for this. Yet for us, Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Notice he's indispensable in the creation of all things, and we exist through him however not all men have this knowledge but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled now the problem was those who had seemed to be christians for a long time were going out to eat at the idol's temple and the baby christians were like this sounds good let's go and then they got there and saw what was going on i was like man this is what i used to do when i was christless Now I'm Christ full and I can still participate in this and their conscience would not let them. Now they got a problem. Older Christians are causing younger Christians to sin. Why? Because they're trying to take the pagan worldview and practices and marrying it to the new life in Christ. And what's Paul saying through this whole thing? You can't do that. You've got to make a break. You've got to make a separation. He moves on here. Verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. It's not about what you eat or don't eat, where you eat or not eat. That's not the point with God. Notice what he says. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. What's your point, Paul? Verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours, this liberty to eat wherever you want to, if your conscience is clear, look what it says, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, that's a different mindset. Because before you show up to McDonald's, you've got to ask yourself if eating at McDonald's is going to stumble any of your brothers and sisters at Christ. You're like, yes, that stumbles me. You're a parent who's been there too much. Think about it in the midst of an idol worship situation. Do you have the liberty to partake in anything? Yes. If you're mature enough to handle that, Because in Christ you have no trappings. You are free from all of those obligations. Absolutely free. However, 
If our freedom comes only about me and what I want to do, and it's very self-centered, as all worship and all practices were done in those cults at that time, it's all very self-centered. It's all about the self and the person and the body and the flesh and, and gratifying yourself. If that's all you're worried about, you've missed it as far as the body of Christ is concerned. Because what it's really about is asking the question is, will this stumble a weaker brother or sister in Christ? Now I have to be mindful. Why is that? Because I'm operating in love, not just in knowledge. Does everybody see that? That's important. Am I the only one that's jazzed about this, I guess? Thanks, Roxanne. You need some pom-poms. That's great. This last thing, let's look at it real quick and then we'll close. Look over at chapter 10. Now he goes on, 8, 9, 10, 11. All of this deals with them trying to marry the pagan worldview to Christianity. And he's trying to show them the separation. Chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, get as close to idolatry as you can, but don't step over the line. Is that what it says? It says flee. Now, it doesn't take a, a Rhodes Scholar to know what the word flee means. It means the house is on fire, run in the opposite direction. Any tendency that a Christian would have, you say, well, we don't really have idolatry today. Calm down, Madonna, yes you do. Okay? We have all kinds of trappings throughout our culture that are trying to get us into a mindset that is somewhat acceptable, that is absolutely running against the grain of our Christian understanding. And we have got to let the Word of God be preeminent in all of these things. This is the reason why we read the Bible, to renew the mind and recorrect the life to get rid of the stuff that is causing us to stumble. He says here, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Do we share in the blood of Christ? Don't we do this in communion when we're celebrating this? Why do we share in the blood of Christ? Because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from sins when nothing else could. How would a pagan have dealt with that? Well, you know what needs to happen is, is we just need to sacrifice this bull and I'm going to get under it so the blood can get all over me. Does that do anything? No, because even at that point, the pagan understands they've got to take a shower. I never needed to shower from the blood of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin, yet they understand there's something integral about it needing to be in that. Here's what Paul's saying. When you come together and you commemorate the Lord's table, this cup of blessing, the cup of the blood, we're participants in that because we're all benefiters. We're, we've, we've benefited from everything that's been secured in Christ. Notice how he moves on from that. He says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. That Greek word, koinonia, a fellowship in his body. Why do we fellowship in his body? Because his body was the sacrifice for sins. What is the cross? Do we remember? What is the cross really? It's an altar. It is an altar of which the perfect sacrifice was placed for the sins of the entire world. And he's saying, don't you realize the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, they have indispensable value and you want to dilute them in cheap wine with how you live and the practices you're bringing in. You can't do that. They stand on their own because they're pure and true on their own. He says here, verse 17, since there's one bread, 
We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, we're not going to incorporate that as a church, but they usually had one loaf that they just passed around to everybody. We want to try that next time? I, right? Pass it on to you. I'm like, yeah. Turn it over a little bit, right? Somebody trying to get the ends. Nobody took the ends yet. They have one loaf they're passing around. Just as we all partake of this one loaf in celebrating the body and the blood of Christ, so we are one body together. We have this unity. We have this equality of standing. Verse 18, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Don't they do that? You sacrifice that, but yet those that are sacrificed, that is used later on for food because they share of the sacrifice. It's not any different for us in the spiritual connotation. Not any different at all. We're benefiting from the blood of Christ's sacrifice for us. So here's what he's getting at. Verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, no. We saw that previously. It's not that an idol is anything threatening whatsoever. Look what he says after that. No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles, the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? There's the problem. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers, partakers, fellowshipping with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Is that our goal? Is it say that something else is going to sacrifice besides what he's already done for us in Christ? This is why we've got to be aware of our pagan surroundings and not marry them to our Christianity. The very word for church, ecclesia, means called out ones. Called out of what? Sin, yes. But what else? The world. Satan is the greatest seamstress ever. And he has knit this incredible world in order to serve his purposes to where we're all glorifying and loving self and not caring who else we hurt, just as long as I get mine. The one who dies with the most toys wins. Aren't these the phrases that we have in our culture? See them all the time? And what is it all about? The exaltation of self. That is bringing, how how does my Christianity best benefit me? I tell you how it does. That your personal time in the Word of God sticks only in your brain and you never pour it out to anybody else. That's bringing a pagan mindset to Bible study. It is. Think about it for a second. Is there anything that goes on growth-wise in the body of Christ that was meant to stay in-house? Nothing. How do I know that? We're all one body. Anything I study in the Word of God is to benefit you. Anything you study in the Word of God is to benefit me. Now, you put supernatural Holy Spirit endowed spiritual gifts in the hands of people that want to marry a pagan culture with a church culture, what do you have? Hey, that tongue speaking sounds real good, but wait till you hear this one. Right? Think about it for a second. What are they trying to do? Isn't it a one-up culture? You know those one-up guys. Yeah, well, I free-falled out of a helicopter. Shut up. Right? (laughs) One-up people. Imagine that in the church. Who could be more spiritual? Well, the person who has the craziest gobbledygook flying out of their mouth, they must be the most spiritual person. Paul's saying, time out. 
You're worshiping like a pagan does because that's what they do when they're in an eyes glazed over frenzy. God isn't worshiped like a fool like that. That's godless worship. That's how godless people worship. Don't bring godless worship into this situation. But your church has drums. Drums aren't godless. (laughs) Guitars aren't godless. They're neutral. And whole churches have divided over the eye. Well, they put drums in the sanctuary. I can't go there anymore with a clear conscience. That may seem foreign to you in the South that destroyed churches. Because they couldn't get over that. Really? That's the problem? How about you're an arrogant busybody? How about that's the problem? We ever thought about, but see, isn't that how the world works? Well, girl, you won't believe what happened. I got some tea to spill. Anybody ever heard that? No, that's what they're saying now. They got tea to spill. That means I'm going to gossip for a long time. You got to hear the latest news that I've got. That's the idea. How does he know that he's over 40? Because I pay attention. (laughs) But that's what it's getting at. That's what it's all coming to. People acting like the world, and somehow we phrase that as a prayer ministry in some churches. It's not. It's a gossip chain. Am I saying that about here? No, I'm not saying that about here. But I'm saying that we all run the risk that if we're not careful and mindful of the Word of God, of opening the door and inviting the world to come in and redictate, which would otherwise be supernatural, holy, and beautiful practices of worship to our God, and it be less... And the sad thing is, we'd all be okay with it. We'd all say, well, this this is just the way we do church here. We don't do church, we are the church. Simple flaw in thinking. Look how he ends this here. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? No. Look what he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And that's the difference. Notice the idea of whether or not it's lawful is asking the question, does it make sense? Is it okay to do? Is there any direct prohibition between it? Uh, Is there anything that would want to shut us down from that? Well, no, no, that seems good. Well, yeah, that was the best idea we've heard all day. We should just go with that. And it's this kind of logical conclusion that we've all come to. Paul says, no, ask the question, is it profitable? Profitable in what respect? Somebody please don't let me down here. When he says, is it profitable, what context is he talking about? The body of Christ. Does it benefit the body of Christ as a whole? Does it build up your brother or sister? You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have love, you're not benefiting the body of Christ. Well, there's nothing illegal against knowing a lot. No, but it makes you a jerk. Stop it. Love. Choose to love with that knowledge. Let love be your goal. Not a smarty pants attitude. Notice he says after that, all things are lawful, but not all things what? edify build up see that's the danger that's the application here if we allow for the things of our world to creep into the church and to start restructuring our christianity all you got to be is just a little off for it to become a bigger problem much later but if we're not on our guard about that humble prayerful searching the word of god against those types of things We wonder why the Holy Spirit's not doing anything within the body of Christ. It's because nobody's being built up. Nobody's being edified. Nobody's being loved. Those are all things that we would forsake so that we could be made much of. And this was the problem at Corinth. I speak in tongues better than you. Look at me. 
Paul's saying, no, no, no. You think you know a lot, but you don't. And because you're not operating in love, it doesn't count. It's in the flesh, and it's diminished. Everything we're trying to do, look to Christ. That's the difference. And I know I just spent a really long time telling you, don't look at self, look at Christ. How does Paul unfold it in the light of pagan nuances? This is how he does it. Does it edify? Is it profitable? Does it build up the body of Christ? We've got to be aware of that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your truth is a sound map for where the body of Christ needs to be at all times. And it is a perfect shield to protect us from past influences of our pre-Christ existence that we might try to introduce into our Christianity. We might not readily see where we've drug in these former things. I'm sure we all have them. Help us to see, Lord. Give us eyes to recognize how I am worshiping you in this moment, what I'm thinking about the Bible at this moment, how I think you work, how I think Jesus is, what I think the Holy Spirit does does not matter apart from the Word of God. And when we bring that folk theology into this situation, we have diminished who you are. We've torn down the beauty of your person. We've watered down the richness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is altogether different. It is altogether holy. It is set apart from anything that we would think. And I pray God, especially starting in myself, humility, Humility to bow before our Creator and say, Lord, I don't know how to worship You apart from You telling me how You should be worshipped. I don't know how to serve You apart from You telling me how I ought to serve. I don't know what to say unless Your Word is the focus of my tongue. Father, we all need that loving correction and we thank You that You are patient and long-suffering with us to help us see those former trappings have no part In the body of Christ, you've made all things new. So we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.